Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 16th, 2014, and my guest is Nina Monk, journalist and author of The Idealist, Jeffrey Sachs and the Quest to End Poverty. Nina, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is your book, The Idealist. It's a rather extraordinary book, a book I resisted reading because I thought I knew how it turned out. Mm-hmm. But I'm but I'm very glad I read it. It had a powerful effect on me. And I want to start with how you came to write the book. Give us the, the backstory. Well, I, I started it in 2006. Um, as, as you know, I am not an economist. I am not an expert in international development or aid. Um, I'm a longtime journalist, and I spent many years writing not only for Vanity Fair, but for Forbes and Fortune, um, the New York Times Magazine, largely on finance and um, Wall Street uh, business. I had my last book was on the disastrous AOL Time Warner merger. And there at some point after having written about um, billionaires, as I often like to say over and over again for for a long time, I um, thought to myself it was really time to to change focus. And in 2006, I think like a lot of people, it, it occurred to me that something was, was really out of whack. That was the year, as, as you may recall, that the Dow closed above 12,000 for the first time. Um, it, it seemed to some people that, that if there wasn't actually a bubble um, on the horizon, something, something was off. And that it would became, at least to me, very, very clear that this issue of income disparity, this issue of what we now refer to as the 1%, uh, was looming and was important, and it mattered a great deal to me, and I wanted to look into it more deeply. And I began, um, originally, it was not a book, it was an assignment for Vanity Fair magazine, I decided to write a profile of Jeffrey Sachs. And his book, The End of Poverty, had come out in uh, less than a year before I started working on it. It was a best-selling book, as you know, and it, I read it and it had a tremendous impact on me. I didn't know much, um, about poverty at the time. Um, it was very compelling to me. I found it to be moving and I decided, um, to follow Jeffrey Sachs around for a number of months for Vanity Fair. And after about five or six months of reporting on him, and on his campaign to end extreme poverty, I, I traveled with him to a number of, of African countries and sat in on meetings um, with him and heard him give countless speeches and read everything he had written. And after that profile came out in Vanity Fair in 2007, um, I, I, I guess I, you could say I was hooked. I thought, you know, I don't just want to write um, a one magazine piece on Jeffrey Sachs, the Millennium Villages Project, his, his big anti-poverty efforts. I really want to see how this turns out because the short-term picture is not all that interesting. I want to know if it works and I want to know if, if it's sustainable and I want to see where it goes. And I was fortunate enough that uh, Doubleday, my publisher, agreed to let me write a book on it. And I wound up 
what had originally been five or six months of reporting on, on Jeffrey Sachs wound up being six years of reporting, and it became The Idealist. Uh, kind of a strange question. How much time do you think you spent in Jeffrey Sachs's presence over those six years? Um, because there's in the book, there were a lot of first-person accounts, and one of the questions I had as I was reading it was, were you there? And of course, the answer is, you were. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of dialogue, not first-person, that's not the right way to say it. It's a lot of dialogue reproduced yeah. from meetings of Sachs with, say, the president of an, of an African country um, with detail. And so tell us the scope of how much time you spent with him, roughly, and how much travel you did back and forth to Africa? It was quite extraordinary. I, I, I um, you know, the, the intensity of the reporting, I'm, I'm in, immensely grateful, by the way, for, for actually having received a substantial enough advance for this book that I could do the kind of traveling and the kind of reporting that I did. Um, I really uh, traced Jeffrey Sachs, and to his credit, he allowed me to follow him just about anywhere and sit in on any meeting. So there were two components to the reporting for this book. On the one hand, following around Jeffrey Sachs, um, both in his meetings. One of my favorite passages in the book is when I was lucky enough to sit in on a meeting he had with um, a senior World Bank official. And um, so being able to sit in on those kinds of meetings, being able to sit in on meetings that he had with presidents of um, certain African countries, that was an extraordinary opportunity. Um, both the president of Tanzania, the president of Uganda, I sat in on those meetings. I sat in on some very, very um, difficult, contentious, angry meetings um, between Jeffrey Sachs and donors uh, both international donors, sometimes there were smaller foundation donors, sometimes they were malaria experts, for example, um, on the ground. And so years and years, I was with Jeffrey Sachs at one point in London, I was with Jeffrey Sachs in Stockholm, I was with Jeffrey Sachs in Ethiopia, in, in uh, Mali. Uh, I really tried whenever I could to follow him around and, and be... Uh, you know, what, what we call a, a fly on the wall as much as I could. I also sat down with him um, every few months. I would sit down either in his townhouse here in Manhattan on the Upper East Side, in his office at Columbia University. Sometimes it would be on a long airline flight somewhere, sometimes in a, in a you know, a VIP waiting room in some, some international airport in, in Africa. And I would interview him one-on-one, -on -one, and those were all recorded, and I had everything transcribed. And uh, so that was one very heavy part of, of my reporting. The other part of my reporting was really to try to get away from Jeffrey Sachs and his official trips to Africa, which were often very choreographed, and instead opt to journey on my own and to really immerse myself in the lives of people in the Millennium Villages. And I began my reporting early on um, by visiting a number of the uh, Millennium Villages and eventually focused in on just two that I really spend most of the time in the book reporting on, or reporting on the both the um, initial success in those villages and then some of the setbacks. And it was essential to me that I spend time in those villages not accompanied by Jeffrey Sachs or members of his staff, but that I really um, be accepted there as much as an outsider can be accepted as, as um, you know, be, be welcomed and really 
try to build the trust that is essential to do this kind of reporting, where eventually I stayed in people's um, huts, I shared meals with them, they um, very generously would, would you know, welcome me with small gifts when I would arrive in the village and, and um, quite charmingly, you know, said, well, you know, we are no longer our Mzungu, you're our uh, sister to us. And, and, and again, that was essential to the, to the other side of the reporting here, which was to, to, I guess, parallel the big picture, the macro um, reporting, I suppose you could call it, of the Jeff Sachs journeys with the very micro reporting that can only be done on the ground um, in, in the style, I would say, of, of an anthropologist. So as, how many, as much as I could. How many days do you think you spent in those two villages that you focused on? All in all, um, God, I, weeks and weeks. I, I, I tried to really go back to rural Africa every three to four months was, was what I tried to do. Sometimes I would sort of go in a, in a circle and visit both of the villages that I focused on on one journey. Sometimes I'd go back again and again. Sometimes I'd stay for five days. Sometimes I'd stay for only two days. I mean, I, I would really, as much as I, as long as I could manage to. And, you know, as, as many of your listeners who have spent time in these villages know, it's, it's very grueling and I'm not, um, I'm not a war correspondent. I don't consider myself to be a particularly brave person or a terribly resilient person. So it's, um, it's very hard work. It's very hard work. Obviously, just to be away from home is hard work, but it's hard work to come face to face with that degree of poverty and to be living in circumstances. Um, you know, I, I found it terribly physically wearing and emotionally exhausting as well. I found that reading the book, <clears throat> and I didn't yeah. make the trip. I was doing it in the comfort of my uh, Maryland <laughs> Maryland suburb, and uh, the book is is extremely powerful. Um, let's talk about the overall. Let's go back to the macro. Yes. What What was Sachs's plan with the Millennium Villages project, and how much money was involved? Um, one of the things that comes through in the book is his relentless passion to solve these problems, and. Um, it's very admirable in one dimension, at least, and the passion and the the intensity of it. So, what was the what was the vision to start with? Um, you know, Jeffrey Sachs had written or wrote the the End of Poverty, and his book, The End of Poverty, really outlined his prescription for how extreme poverty could be ended. And part of the reason that book has been such an enormous um, seller and continues to be to sell very well is because it offers really, um, as he himself often said, a, a quote, simple solution to ending extreme poverty. And one of Jeff Sachs's great attributes is that he's able to take very complicated ideas and simplify them and put them into just a few data points. And I think in some ways the appeal of the end of poverty and of his proposal for how to end extreme poverty was the, the fact that it was so, sim so simple and it was so straightforward. Um, at, as you know, many development experts have did dismiss it at the time and continue to dismiss his agenda and his approach as reductive and, and basically unworkable. But, but he put out there something that was terribly appealing to those of us certainly who, who maybe were a little naive or didn't know as much as, 
as, as the experts on how one ends poverty. And it was basically that if one approaches the problem with enough determination, enough focus, and yes, enough money, the, the, the problem can be resolved. We can find an end to extreme poverty. And, and his idea was that by pursuing sort of a dozen or dozens of, of you know, science-based, as he liked to call them, interventions simultaneously, um, we could really make a breakthrough. And so rather than just put, dropping a well in a village or bringing in um, um, a, a health clinic or a better school, we would do all these things at, at, in one go and um, systematically, holistically lift people up onto the what, what he would call the ladder of development. And we, if we just focused on it and we just um, put a little more money into it and just worked a little harder than we had worked, this could all be pulled off. And his Millennium Villages project um, came out of the ideas that are, that underpin his book, The End of Poverty. And he effectively said, you know what, I don't just want to write about this. I want to put these theories into practice. And if I can raise the equivalent of, of $120 per capita per year, I can put into place all of these ideas that I have, and I can show the world that these theories can can work. And once I have proven them in a handful of villages, the idea presumably was going to be that he would convince the donors that this was the way to go and we would have Millennium Village projects. Or scale it up. Similar. They would scale up all across the continent and, you know, ultimately that poverty w- would end. And there was and also – there's also this idea that it's not a lot of money. It's a lot of money to them, but it's not a lot of money to us, the, the richer parts of the world. And once they they got onto that ladder – I think, again, it's a very beautiful idea. Uh, it didn't turn out quite as he intended. But it, once they got on the ladder, it could be self-sustaining. They could start climbing on their own. They just needed to get a, a jump start. It's like when a car is stalled out. You, know, you give Absolutely. it a push and all of a sudden it ignites and then, it, then it, it, you don't need the battery anymore and it can do it by itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeffrey Sachs, um, as, as many of your listeners will recall, has, has, was always one of the um, – believers in the idea of a poverty trap and that if you could just lift people out of this trap, if you could implement these interventions that he had outlined in the end of poverty, high yield seeds and fertilizer, mosquito nets, better schools, improved health care, sanitation, wells, protected springs, and so on, um, and you could just give them this initial push, this lift um, onto the, this first rung, you could make a decisive difference. And then they would sort of, as you say, like getting a car jump-started, boom, they would get up and go, and, and we would be home free. And he named this experiment the Millennium Villages Project, which, of course, was a reference to the United Nations Millennium Declaration um, in 2000, in which, it, among other efforts, they were going to try to have poverty and so on, and and it was supposed to be a great, great project. And he received, managed to raise $120 million right off the go for what was initially supposed to be a five-year project. And much of that money, $50 million of it, came from George Soros. Is that a lot of money, $120 million. How many people or how many villages was it supposed to? I don't to? think it's a lot of money at all. In fact, um, but, but Jeffrey Sachs came with that number very um, thoughtfully, I think. Um, I think in the end he realized it was – he was, in fact, in many ways undercapitalized, so to speak. Um, but part of the reason he came up with that figure is thoughtfully – 
he looked at foreign aid flows or flows of foreign aid money. And, you know, even if we managed to um, sort of convince the rich countries to give 1% of their, uh, their income into foreign aid, that this was, it was conceivable if he could convince the rich countries to increase their foreign aid spending by a little, not a whole lot more than they were spending now, that you could actually pull it off at that kind of per capita spending. So he was trying to come up to his credit with a number that was actually realistic. Um, And I think in some ways, and and as he himself conceded to me, uh, as the experiment unfolded, as the as the project unfolded, it really there, there turned out to be a lot of financial constraints, and those numbers um, arguably were nowhere near enough. I mean, among other problems, um, it turns out I think that that you can't really accomplish what he'd hoped to accomplish at one hundred and twenty dollars per person. And of course, these are people who who are desperately poor. Um, they're earning. Earnings not necessarily the right word. Their, their living standards in many of these places are under a dollar fifty or two dollars a day. Um, so that's uh, you know two dollars a day is seven hundred dollars a year, one hundred and twenty dollars per person. On top of that's a healthy amount for somebody earning a dollar a day. One hundred and twenty is up close to a fifty percent increase in in well being. But of course, they didn't just hand out money. The idea was to create infrastructure and. Um, uh, technology and give give people access to to knowledge and technology that would that would ideally transform their lives. I'm tempted to let us slowly unspin the story the way it does in the book, which of course yeah. takes place in chronological time. But uh, I think instead I'd like you to summarize what you think is the was the outcome of that five years. You've already hinted at it. Uh, how do you think the project the pro- the project and projects turned out? And uh, then we'll talk about how that came to be. You know, I think the, the the real question, people have often said to me, well, do you consider the Millennium Villages Project to be a failure? Well, no, I don't consider it to be a failure because um, there are many people's lives, um, I believe, have been improved by the by the project itself. Um, I think we're, we, we all know uh, and can agree that if you invest $5 million or $10 million into a small, isolated African village, you will see positive results. Uh, many, many people, in certainly in sub-Saharan Africa and many other parts of the world, are alive thanks to foreign aid, to humanitarian aid, and so on. The question, though, is, um, you know, I guess what I should say, the bottom line is that's, that's called charity. And we know that it works, and it's good work, and I certainly admire it. But charity is not the same thing as economic development. And um, what, what Jeffrey Sachs promised and what Jeffrey Sachs aimed to, to do here was not simply to help um, a few thousands or even tens of thousands of people in isolated villages in Africa. What he aspired to do was to find a formula that could end decisively and sustainably um, extreme poverty around the world and to come up with a kind of formula that could be um, scaled up, that could be used all over the world, but certainly all across sub-Saharan Africa. And people who work in the field of, of economic development wrestle with something much bigger than the impact of charity, and that is How does economic development, real economic development take root and how can it be sustained 
in desolate, absolutely desolate, desperate places where people are illiterate, where um, they don't live past the age of 55, where there are no roads, there is no power, there is no water, um, there are few, if any, resources of any kind. There is no connection to um, the global economy um, or even their own domestic economies. Can people really be lifted out of poverty? as Jeff Sachs put it, or do they have to lift themselves? And how do you connect um, these rural African villages to the global economy of the 21st century? And I, I think that that was something, certainly when I began my book, I didn't fully appreciate how different economic development and humanitarian aid or charity are. And in the Millennium Villages Project, um, in the villages, certainly in the villages that I examine most closely, but I think across the board in all of the villages, many people's lives have improved. That is undeniable. Um, in village after village, I saw um, children who suffered from less malnutrition, for example, fewer incidents of malaria quite clearly. There was higher agricultural production in, in cases. There was improved hygiene in certain cases, and it was impressive work. But it also began to fall apart very quickly as the um, as the budgets ran low. Uh, infighting began. Uh, there, it was quite clear to me that this was neither sustainable, and nor was it scalable. And I think in the end of the day, that's that's really the the terrible tragedy of this project. We've had William Easterly on the program a few times. He's been a, a vocal critic of Sachs. We've also had Sachs on the program, and we'll put up links, of course, and you can find those those episodes in the archives. But one of the things that I want to emphasize that I think makes the book so powerful is that it's one thing to say, well, as you just summarized it, you know, things didn't work so well. They got some short-run benefits. Uh, when you actually read about what happened and you read about the challenge of connecting, um, connecting human beings in cooperative ways, which is what markets do and what, what are very much missing in, in these settings, and they're missing for a whole bunch of reasons. They're missing – partly because of bad governance from above. They're missing because of bad history. They're missing for a thousand reasons. Um, but when you read about the actual details of, say, a surgery room that goes from being a, a room with uh, no, say, no water and no heat and, and nothing really that's really surgical about it to something that is surgical, but in the corner um, when a child is, is born prematurely and there is a general electric uh, incubator that's been donated that's sitting wrapped in the corner, but there's not enough electricity to run it, um, and so the baby dies. It it brings about it's it's heartbreaking, and uh, it's really an incredible aspect of the book that makes it really a must read for people who care about these issues, uh, as I hope most, if not all, of us do. Um, so so let's go into some of the details of what went right and what went wrong. Uh, the original idea, and and I have to say, um, I, running in the in the background, of course, in my thoughts as I read this book, as longtime listeners know, is is my favorite quote from Hayek: "The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they mm -hmm. imagine they can design." And um, unfortunately, this book is a great uh, ongoing example of that. But the original idea was, well, these people, a lot of these folks in these poor countries and these poor villages. They're farmers. So if they just had more crop, if they just had more output, more yield, they'll get richer. And uh, and the one way to do that is to teach them some modern farming techniques, fertilizer, et cetera. 
And then when they produce more, which would be great, they can sell it. Now they'll leave subsistence. So talk about what they tried to do and what actually happened. Well, there were so many well-intentioned ideas that underpin the Millennium Villages Project. And many of them are, in fact, well-proven ideas for helping to eradicate poverty, whether it's um, using malarial mosquito nets to help reduce transmission of malaria or, um, um, you know, as, as trying to bring in uh, wells, protected water sources to improve the quality of water. But, but as you note, um, you know, one, one of the terrible sadnesses of spending time in sub-Saharan Africa is to discover again and again the remains of well-meaning development projects that litter the continent. You know, you have broken water pumps and half-finished healthcare clinics and incompatible machine parts and rusting tractors and roads that lead nowhere and pit latrines that have caved in and incubators that, that can't work because there isn't a functioning electric source and so on and so forth. And, and it's this terrible sadness of a disconnect between um, outsiders and, and, you know, teams of sort of these enthusiastic volunteers or, or engineers or, or development workers from the West who never fully understand or appreciate the limitations of what's happening on the ground. And in, in the case of Jeffrey Sachs's initiative, specifically the Millennium Villages Project, one of the villages where I spent a great deal of time, Ruhiro, which is in the southwest uh, Uganda, Part of well, one of the ideas there was to lift the people out of poverty by introducing fertilizers and high yield seeds. It makes perfect, imminently good sense. Um, all over Africa, there are a number of initiatives right now to try to improve agricultural yields. I mean, in sort of you know, in, in the spirit of what was what was done in the Green Revolution in in India, for example. And in this particular village that I spent a lot of time in. The plots of land in, in people's shambas and their, their very small um, farms are so small and so infertile that farmers can barely grow enough food to stay alive. And absolutely no one uses chemical fertilizers and no one uses high yield seeds and there are no tractors or irrigation and, and really a hand hoe is about as, as modern as things get. And so um, the Millennium Villages Project very sensibly on paper said, well, you know what, bang, this is a straightforward, easy, what Jeffrey Sachs would refer to as quick wins. We're going to go in there and we're going to give people fertilizer. At first, we'll give it to them you know, for free and then we'll, we'll give it to them on a subsidized basis. And we'll um, quickly and we'll give them high yield seeds and we'll show them better farming techniques. And Bingo, in a single um, harvest, in a single season, you see these extraordinary results. And so in Rohira specifically, um, I, I recount the story of how they distributed 32 tons of high-yield seeds and 220-odd tons of fertilizer to 7,000 households. And um, the whole cost of the inputs, which was about $300,000, was paid by the project. And then they set up a, um, a few dozen demonstration farms and sent extension workers to out to across the hills to teach the farmers proper planting methods. And immediately, um, within a single season, by that by harvest time, the results were just extraordinary. You know, the maize yields had jumped from 1.8 tons per hectare to 3.7 tons, and there was this fantastic bumper crop. And I remember being there, and we were all just 
you know, it was a marvel. It really was a marvel. And the villagers suddenly were not only well-fed, but they actually had excess maize that, you know, in theory that you could, you could store, except there was a problem. There were, A, no storage facilities to keep the maize safe. Um, and so as a result, you had um, vermin, you know, pest, disease. The rats, the, the, the rats start showing up and, and ate their way through, I don't know how many bags of the maize. And um, the, the farmers were left with all of this maize that they couldn't sell because, of course, we don't have any roads. And there isn't really that much demand for maize because in that part of Uganda, Matoke, the, the local cooking banana, is what people really want. And, and the they'd, corn, they'd been pushed to grow maize, right? It wasn't – they'd been given the maize first. seed. That wasn't what there was their normal crop. Exactly. Um, very little – there was very, very little corn grown in these parts of Uganda. The, the Ugandans in these parts um, refer to corn actually as prison food because it's what they view as as the food that is given to prisoners or, or also school children. Those are sort of the two groups that, that, that are kind of forced to eat it for lack of anything else. But it's not in high demand, certainly. And what quickly became apparent is that even if you could find a buyer for this excess maize, that the cost of transport alone, given that there were no properly paved roads and this village was so isolated, the cost of transport alone would wipe out any profit. And so now began this kind of desperate um, moment in the village, and I was there at this time, where the villagers started really panicking because they had had this enormous bumper crop. So the first part of the experiment had been tremendously successful and had had the desired outcome. But suddenly we were faced with this problem of, you know, what the heck do we do with all of this corn? And in the end, most of the farmers were forced to sell this maize for far less than the cost of the inputs because they wound up doing what farmers so often do with bumper crops when you're in a remote region. You dump the excess maize all at once. The market prices collapsed, of course. Um, any number of farmers just couldn't find buyers at all, and they just left the maize to rot. And and the, the, the situation was so incredibly sad and so desperate, and some of the farmers began to protest and um, at one point, they, they lit a car on fire and they smashed a window in the Millennium Project. Um, I mean, it, you know, it was just sort of one tragedy after another that had been set off by a seemingly obvious and thoughtful and intelligent solution to a problem. But because the entire chain or the entire um, process hadn't been thought through fully, you, you, we wound up with a terrible problem problem on our hands. Yeah, one of the, uh, the other Hayekian aspects of this is Hayek often emphasizes the particular circumstances of time and place and the ignorance, and I mean that literally, the ignorance of experts about what is really going on on the ground or what people actually care about comes through periodically in your writing where cultural norms such as, well, maize is prison food, so maybe that wasn't even – the best thing to start with, forget the fact they couldn't sell the, the surplus, they didn't have any roads, they didn't have storage facilities. The fact that they picked a crop that the people themselves would never have grown much of themselves. Although you say there was 1.8 uh, tons, is it tons per hectare? Mm-hmm. So, or people were growing it before in some amount, right? They'd been growing it in small amounts, absolutely. But it was not their their main crop. Their main crop was the, this banana and banana called batoke, exactly. Yeah. So just those kind of cultural things just come through now and then. So 
Why didn't they then say, well, okay, what was the reaction of the project itself? I understand the villagers were angry and frustrated. They didn't like rats hanging around. They didn't like the fact that they thought they were going to be rich and now they weren't. But didn't people say, well, next year it'll be different? Did they? Tr- what did they try to do? How did they respond? How did, pe- how did the project and how did the farmers respond to this experience? You know, I think that it, it, everything was, um, I was, you know, I've, I've compared it before to sort of that, that, that old game whack-a-mole. Um, you know, you're working in real time and it's complicated and there are a lot of different things happening all at once. And every time the, the fellows kind of running the program on the ground would tamper down or think that they had solved one problem, something else would crop up again. And, and so Jeffrey Sachs had again another inspired idea, which was, well, you know, the perfect solution to this excess maze in, in this village was to find a buyer, of course, and a natural buyer in this case was the World Food Program. And Jeffrey Sachs, thanks to his um, um, contacts, was able to convince the World Food Program to come in and agree to buy um, the excess maize from Ruhir, or large amounts of the uh, maize and also the beans. They were growing beans as well. And, and part of the challenge in the Millennium Project was they, you know, the maize was one example, but they were also trying constantly to bring in other and, and different kinds of possible cash crops. So in Ruhira, they were trying to grow um, um, different spices that they thought there might be a market for. They were trying to introduce tomatoes. They were trying to introduce sweet potatoes. I mean, they were doing everything to try to come up with different kinds of crops for which they could build a market. But, you know, you're trying to do this from the ground up. But the, the World Food Program deal is very instructive in itself as well. So Jeffrey Sachs, to his credit, gets out there and manages to convince the World Food Program to come into this, you know, godforsaken village in the middle of nowhere and agree to buy um, all of the excess beans that this village of Ruhira has done. And so the village is absolutely thrilled, and they, they grow a whole lot of beans um, designed just for the World Food Program. They sign a contract with the World Food Program. And the deal is done, and we think it's going to happen. But sure enough, because it's the World Food Program, I mean, I'm laughing. Of course, this is terrible black comedy. But, you know, the World Food Program now insists that there have to be all these sort of outside consultants who have to come in to make sure that the beans conform to the WFP standards, um, these very rigorous uh, standards. And they, they do round after round after round of inspection in this small village in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, three times the food has to, the, the food inspectors demand that the beans be fumigated. And um, this keeps costing the farmers more and more money. And the farmers have absolutely nothing. And there's more and more quality controls. And then they insist that they have to be bagged in these special bags marked with the World Food Program. And there's one delay and another delay and another delay. And meanwhile, the farmers aren't being paid. And with each month, because the whole idea with this program was that the World Food Program was going to take the beans, buy the beans, pay the farmers immediately at market, uh, at, at harvest time, so they didn't have to sit around waiting. And, and Mar, as you know, at harvest time is when the prices are the lowest, because it's when the greatest supply is out there. But now months and months go by. And meanwhile, with each passing month, the actual market price of the beans climbs higher and higher, to the point that suddenly this contract that has been negotiated with the World Food Program is no longer um, advantageous. And now, again, you know, all hell breaks loose and the farmers start to rebel. And we've got this contract with the World Food Program. And, and you know, even Jeffrey Sachs is at this point trying to email or contact them and say, look, you know, this, we've got to somehow find a way around this bureaucracy. 
And, um, you know, long and the short of it is after three or four years of trying to make this contract work with the World Food Program, finally they threw up their hands and that was the end of that. Um, but it's just another example of threw how up their even hands. If, did they sell? Did they end up? Did did, did a transaction take place? The transaction. Um, some of the. I think two of the three did, but it, in the end, the World Food, Food Program took much smaller amounts of um, what had been promised or what had been contracted. Partly because by the time they were able to actually purchase them, a lot of the farmers had given up and already sold and sort of rebelled against the World Food Program, so to speak, and had already sold on the open market or sold through other channels. Um, and so some of it just it just didn't work. And finally, in the end, the fellow um, who kind of ran the program on the village level, David Sriri, decided this was was a ludicrous way to try to to make this work. But I, I think part of the poignancy that, that, you know, when you mentioned too when one reads this book is that, you know, David Sariri, who I profile in the book, who was Jeffrey Sachs's representative in this village of Ruhira in Uganda, really a magnificent man, deeply intelligent, um, terribly empathetic to the problems of his people in this village, a PhD himself in agriculture, very thoughtful, who worked and really ran himself ragged. I've never seen anyone work quite like that to find solutions to these problems. And while these the villagers were um, sort of uh, uprising and saying, well, you, you know, you had promised this was going to work out. He was scrambling in his office to find other solutions and find other buyers. And meanwhile, the prices of fertilizers are going up. And, you, you know, it's sort of one thing after another thing after another thing. And it, you know, I remember one of the terribly sad stories as well as he had come up with a very clever idea for them to sell spices, which was a very high margin uh, cash product. And they had kind of a perfect environment for growing certain high-profit spices. But it quickly became apparent that the foreign buyers for these spices that they thought they'd lined up, they only wanted organic spices. They had been led to believe these were organic. Well, it turns out that all the fertilizer used for the, the maize and the beans had been seeping down the valley, uh, not surprisingly, into the valley below where the spices were being grown. So in fact, they weren't organic at all. And then the buyers wanted nothing to do with the spices. And so, you know, I, I'm rambling here because really in real time, the, 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 the whole experiment often felt like it was a rambling um, runaway train. And, and just when you thought that you had solved or, or you began to see light at the end of the tunnel, the, the tunnel collapsed right in front of you and you, you were right back to where you had started. Which makes me... Um... Think of the following, which you don't write about in the book. I want to ask you about. Um, so I'm. Let me confess my bias, and you know, one of the reasons I was not going to read this book is, is again, I, I sort of knew how it would turn out. I knew it didn't turn out so well, and my bias is that top-down attempts to impose solutions on in people doesn't don't tend to work very well. Things need to emerge organically. They need to grow out of the desires and skills of the people who are there. And so I'm I'm on the side generally of, of William Easterly and others who are, are skeptical of these kind of doesn't matter whether they're small or massive, these 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 things where outsiders come in as experts and, and imagine they can design a better future for people's whose lives are involved. What I find interesting uh as as you talk about it is you know again I, I it gives me a, a feeling of deep sadness. Um I'm getting that same feeling right now that I had when I read the book, which is just it's it's so it it's so overwhelmingly sad 
And yet, when people like Jeffrey Sachs and others who who tout solutions, um, those of us who oppose them are, are treated as as callous, indifferent, heartless. Um, we we're we hold the moral low ground, and and the Jeffrey Sachs, the idealist, the title of your book, he holds the moral high ground. He's he's out there doing something, and yet in many ways, many ways, and you can see that he had the program had some positive effects. But in many ways, it's one of the cruelest things in the world to come to a group of people, uh, set their hearts on fire, saying, "I'm going to change your life." There's magic coming. It's the magic of expertise and wisdom and and money. And, and your lives are going to be different. And, and to take that dream, which every human being has, of a better life, especially for their children, and to, and to smash it and, and through your own hubris, is it just it, – it's, it's so depressing partly because those arguments tend to win. Those arguments of, of, of moral indignation and, and activism – and those of us who argue for a different approach are, are really relegated as 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 cruel. And uh, I just I think there's something incredibly cruel about what uh, the activists do in these cases. Oh, I think you make such an important such an important point. Um, you know, part of what Jeffrey Sachs does that I think is so destructive and so deeply unfair, and not only because I've been the target of it, but I've seen him do it to so many people, is that. He um, uses a kind of um, emotional blackmail to get what he wants. And I saw him do it again and again, which is accuse those who counter his arguments or disagree with his arguments or bring up valid um, um, questions about, about his approaches to accuse them of not caring about people. And, and the fact of the matter is um, that Jeffrey Sachs, in oversimplifying problems, and in amplifying his abilities, really um, not only set himself up for failure, but really um, um, in, in, in so many ways, not just disappointed, but, but cruelly disappointed and harmed the people he supposedly set out to help. And I, um, just speaking more personally with with this book, The Idealist, because this book really reveals how hard it is to lift people out of poverty, I have had critics um, accuse me of opposing foreign aid. Well, I don't oppose foreign aid, and I don't think that uh, Jeffrey Sachs's critics, including Bill Easterly, oppose foreign aid. What, what I oppose and what I think many of Jeffrey Sachs's critics oppose is a lack of accountability and a lack of honesty about the repeated failures in the fields of foreign aid and development. And um, it is it's just essential if we hope to improve people's lives and we hope to really make a dent in extreme poverty and we hope to make serious and sustained progress on this front that we're honest with ourselves. We're obligated to ask tough questions about how effectively our aid money is being spent. There is not going to be more aid money out there, whatever Jeffrey Sachs might claim. And the question is not just about getting out there and telling people they need to give more money. The key is to really say, what is it that works best? Let's make sure that there are rigorous evaluations and um, let's make sure that there's accountability and that we put our money 
into the kinds of efforts, humanitarian efforts, development efforts that really work, that really make a difference. Now, you pointed out that uh, George Soros was the lead, uh, one of the lead donors, well, the biggest single donor of the first tranche, the first round of funding, which was $120 million. Yes. He, he gave, was it 50 or 70 at the first amount? 50. 50. 50 <clears throat> then Sachs went back to folks after, I don't know how long, you'll tell me, and he said, we need more money. And he went and raised an additional, I want to say, 70 from Soros mm -hmm. that that had more strings attached this time. But mm -hmm. talk about that. But what I really want to ask you is, did you talk to George Soros? How did he feel about this, about his personal money going toward an effort that he was obviously very passionate about? I hate it when people say, well, rich people don't care how much they spend. They have so much. Well, they one of the one of the reasons they're rich is they spend their money carefully. It's not the only mm -hmm. reason, but it's one reason. And rich people don't give away $120 million. It doesn't matter how many billions you have. They don't do it casually. So mm -hmm. I'd be curious what you know about Soros' reaction because um, he, had, he, he probably cared a lot about what happened. He didn't just write a check and walk away. I um, I interviewed George Soros early on, um, either in 2006 or maybe it was early 2007, when I first began working or following Jeffrey Sachs. And at that point, he had just invested um, or announced that he was giving $50 million to the Millennium Villages Project. As you say, he was definitely the lead investor in the project. And I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of George Soros's. I like George Soros a lot. And I went to his office in Midtown Manhattan and I asked him all about it. And he's very good humored. And, um, and, he, and he said, you know, fairly casually, he's given away enormous sums of money to all kinds of things, although this was very much for him an, a new area. Um, and I said, well, you know, aren't you, aren't you terribly concerned? I mean, what if the Millennium Villages Project doesn't work out? And, and what if it's not the solution to global poverty? And isn't this investment of yours a huge risk? And he sort of shrugged and, and said, well, you know, um, I, I figured that if, as the, you know, the worst case scenario, it's just a humanitarian investment, in which case it's a good investment on its own. But, you know, imagine if it actually succeeds. In that case, we're going to wind up with a reward that would, will be way out of proportion to the investment that I've made. High risk, high return. Kind of, exactly. It was sort of a charming approach to it. Um, and now... Unfortunately, I, I did not get to interview George Soros more recently since the um, results or some of the, some of the data has come out from the Millennium Villages Project. And it's been a little bit clear that unfortunately we, we, you know, it hasn't succeeded in the way that one might have hoped originally. Um, I think it's pretty clear based on the money that he has continued to put towards the Millennium Villages Project, but it's now the money that he pledged for the second phase is, is very different than the money that he put up in the first phase. In the first phase, it was really to help pay for the entire project, to get it up and running, to pay for all of the interventions and so on. The money that he did um, provide in the phase two, which was years five to ten, um, came with a lot of strings. The, the main issue is that um, $20 million was not at all guaranteed. It was specifically made or made available for loans that were contingent on villages coming up with what he termed investment-worthy business projects that met with Soros' approval. So in other words, this is, was more of a, a kind of a venture capital funding in this case. So I'm 
guessing, and again, I haven't interviewed him firsthand, but just based on reading the press release and looking at the money that he's given for the second phase, he very much shifted the investments away from paying for those original in interventions and rather saying, you know what, the part that I believe in or I want to try to support is specifically business interventions. Let's see if we can provide some sort of entrepreneurial startup money and microfinance, see yeah. capital to get people exactly. again jump started. Exactly. So let me push back on you a little bit um, and and represent Sachs here. You went to two villages. They didn't turn out so well. You chronicled the some really depressing anecdotes, but as you concede, a lot of people's lives were improved. Um, malaria is down in those villages, I think, in a lot of villages because of bed nets that were that were donated through the project. Um, how do you know you're capturing the real picture here through just your personal on the ground two two villages? First of all, how many villages are there, and why do you think these two are representative? What what do we know about the overall impact of the project? Um, that's a, a, a good question. Um, the uh, obviously, by by definition, when you're when you're reporting, you um, are, can only really report on on what you see. So there could be some extraordinary successes happening in some of the villages that I didn't examine as closely. But I will tell you that while I did not spend as much time in the other villages as I did in in uh, the two that I focused on. There is a, a good deal of data that has come out of the other villages. Um, I certainly visited, uh, I think, four of the other villages, though not repeatedly. Many other researchers have gone in um, and visited the other villages. I know any number of my, my good sources are people at all levels of the Millennium Villages project at the higher levels out of New York, um, who ran the the organization from the highest levels, who've had access to all the information. And although um, some of the villages certainly have done better than others, and some of them have perhaps done better than the two villages I focused on, there there is no indication that the villages I focused on were particularly um, marginal. I mean, certainly my village on the my, do you like the way I call it, my village, the village that I spent a lot of time on on the Somali-Kenya border was one of the most difficult villages and, and arguably one of the worst villages in Saxe's portfolio. The other village in Uganda has been held up by the Millennium Villages Project again and again as one of their success stories. So I actually would argue that the two villages I focus on are fairly representative of a very good village and a not so good village. So what? But, but, oh no, I just if I can if I can just finish. I'm by far, um, you know, not alone in having been a real critic of the data that has come out of the villages. I I'm not an academic, as you know, so a lot of my reporting is much more anecdotal and much more on the ground and and from the the people themselves, but. There have been any number of reports that have come out showing that the data that's come out of the village is, is uneven, that it's inconclusive. There have had to be, there was a, a major report in Lancet that had to be retracted because the data turned out to be flawed. Um, there, there, there's a lot of issues. Now, Jeffrey Sachs is responding that although the data currently is not available to show that the project has worked, he has repeatedly said in recent interviews that by 2016, there will be data available for us that will demonstrate the effectiveness of this project. So I have no way of telling you what will happen in 2016, but certainly at this point, 
There is simply not enough data to demonstrate that this project is a success. There is data that shows clearly that in um, certain villages, the prevalence of malaria has dropped, that more women are giving birth with the help of trained birth attendants, that child mortality is down, um, and, and so on. But at the same time, as academics and other researchers have pointed out, those improvements have been happening all across sub-Saharan Africa, not just in the Millennium Villages. Reports from UNICEF, the World Bank, the IMF have confirmed that you know, the lives of the poorest Africans really have been improving slowly, but they have clearly been improving in the last 10, 20 years. We've seen deaths from malaria fall sharply all across Africa. We've seen infant mortality rates drop sharply. We've seen more and more African children attending primary schools and so on. So it's I think one of the most difficult, most problematic parts of the Millennium Villages project is Jeff Sachs' inability to state um, decisively or to show real evidence that demonstrates that his approach has any advantage over approaches that have been used on more general ways across the continent. Well, those are tough challenges, right? We understand how hard it is to tease out the impact of one program, one intervention in a multi-causal world. And you point out just one example of that, which is the continent as a whole is doing well. You don't know how much is attributable to this project per se. Yeah. Um, but let's go on the micro level. Let's let's go anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take the two villages you spent the time in the most. Uh, what would have been an, a success in your mind what, when you started this project? If you had said, what would you have expected to see if things had gone – forget measuring it for a moment because it's hard to measure. We've had a number of guests on this program and talk about how pitiful – Government statistics are in poor parts of the world. So it's a huge problem just getting honest data. Forget the fact that it's imperfect and what it actually describes. But in terms of intangible stuff, stuff you can't measure, what would you have said five years ago as a success would have made this project look successful? And why have you concluded five years later that it's not? Again, no data. Just what did you see on the ground that discouraged you? You know, I think from my perspective, um, again, as an absolute non-expert here, I'm not trying to pretend I'm an economist by a long shot, but I think from my perspective, what became clear as the years went by and as I, I really um, came as much as I could to, to try to understand the lives of, of individual people in these villages, what became clear to me is that what counts um, when you're talking about economic development is to really be able to see the possibility of sustained earnings. You know, so, so the, the very earliest step is that you improve people's health and you stop them from, from dying of all kinds of horrible, horrible diseases and you, um, begin to provide them with a health clinic and you, you provide them with the possibility of education and you provide them with with sanitation, with clean water, with latrines. And, and that's kind of absolute baseline, you know, lowest hanging fruit. And what Jeffrey Sachs would often refer to as the quick wins. Um, you provide free food in a school and suddenly a whole lot more kids go to a school. That's a, that's a, a lovely and easy uh, kind of success on a, on a basic level. But what happens after three or four or five years? What happens when the people who have built that school are no longer in that village? What happens when Jeffrey Sachs and his team pull out and the money has run out? How do you 
make sure that this kind of development that has happened and um, this sort of beginning of some kind of a promise is sustained, that it really has taken root. And I think what we can all agree on is that what's essential is that there is some possibility of, of employment, of livelihood, of sustained livelihood for the people who are living there. How can they earn a living? How can they keep themselves alive beyond the basic charity um, that, that was given them, given to them right from the beginning. And in both of the villages that I spent the time in, there was really nothing at all by the time I finished my reporting in 2012 to demonstrate that there was anything sustained here, that there was anything that allowed the people in these villages to continue to live here and support their families and that a generation from now would be there. There is no industry. There is no reason for anyone to uh, develop markets in these places. There are no resources. There's no water. It's agriculture is excruciatingly difficult. The soil is, is, is lacking any nourishment. Um, there's prop, terrible problems of violence. Um, what, what happens in the long term? And, you know, there are um, some economists out there, I'm thinking of, of Lent Pritchett, for example, who have proposed that maybe on some level the solution is that, that people just aren't meant to live in certain parts of the world. You know, maybe these are, are not places that can ever be developed. Yeah, I was and, thinking of the old joke that what East Texas needs is <clears throat> to escape poverty is luggage. That <laughs> in the old days, they need to just – they need to get out. They, it's not a good place. It's but possible. But, but it raises – and I was going to ask you that, so I'm glad you brought it up. But it, what, what it raises the question of is why do they stay? They, they don't need luggage. It's, that's just a flippant joke, and it's, it's moderately amusing. But there's something – I don't want to be romantic about poverty because I think there's nothing romantic about it. And there's nothing romantic about a child dying at all, nothing. And I think a terrible thing that West does sometimes – is romanticized poverty. Uh, I remember a friend of mine going on a trip to Kenya and talking about how charming it was that the kids would beg for a pencil. And there's nothing charming about it. It's 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 incredibly sad that human beings live in certain situations. But it does raise the question that for some of these folks, they have an, an ancient way of life. It's what they're used to. They like it, some of it. Many of the things you talk about in the book is that some of the habits and cultural norms that they have, they're 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 woven deeply into their lives and to suggest they can now do something radically different is not just a fantasy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not what they want. And I don't want to say they want to be poor because they don't want to be poor. But there are aspects – there must be aspects of living there that, that are precious to them. Well, I think you raise this – the question of the, the real um, arrogance and potential dangers of intervention by well-intentioned but often ignorant or at least naive outsiders. And one of the things that sometimes made my heart stop was realizing that Jeffrey Sachs, in all of his enthusiasm and sort of raw rawism, would come, you know, powering, motoring into a village in his convoy of of UN vehicles, you know, with bulletproof windows and, and air conditioning and, and give these, these, um, enormously, um, uplifting speeches and make all kinds of promises and, and set in motion, um, an enormous machinery, so to speak, that then when the project began to fail or parts of it began to fail or the staff was no longer there or they stopped showing up, 
you know, the, the, the devastation left behind was incredibly cruel. And I myself had the kinds of questions raised, uh, the, rather, the kinds of questions that you're raising. You know, in, in the village of Dare 2, which was the village on the Somali-Kenyan border that I spent a lot of time in, really in, a, in one of the most desperate and violent um, parts of the world, utterly arid, um, dominated by nomadic camel herders. You know, after five years, uh, six years of the Millennium Villages Project's work there, they basically left it for naught. You know, officially the project is still running, though, on a skeletal scale there. But, you know, the last time I was there, the village still had no running water or electricity or paved roads. You know, there were no industries or long-term jobs or, or anything that, as far as I could see, was going to last when the project officially came to an end. And what startled me was to see how quickly this this village, it's not really not a village, it's a, it's a sort of loose community of nomads that pass through thanks to the fact that there's a wet, that there happens to be a well in this very arid landscape. But, but this, what had really been uh, at least a physically very beautiful, wide open pastoral landscape, um, lived and occupied by Somali herders who set up their, their nomadic dome shaped huts and, and moved with the seasons that this landscape had turned into something that really resembled um, a shanty town, that that lured by the money that was poured into this area by the Millennium Villages Project, that that a number, a, a large number of pastoralists, of nomadic people, had given up being nomads and had settled in on the hopes of sort of living somewhat parasitically off of the the money that was was coming in from the project, and they were now really living in a kind of squalor that I hadn't seen on my first visit. Um, their, their, their huts were jammed together. They were patched with those horrible, um, polyurethane bags that one sees all over Africa, covered in, in sort of burlap bags and plastic tarps from the UN refugee, um, um, service. There were sort of streams of slop that were going down between these tightly packed huts. And the latrines had overflowed or were clogged, um, and no one was able to agree on whose job it was to maintain them. And there were pitches, uh, ditches sort of piled high with garbage. And, and, and it was just, I, it made my heart just sink. And I thought to myself, you know what, Jeffrey Sachs, you came to this village once. That's not true. I think he came a second time in a helicopter on the second time. He's been to that village twice. And on both times, it was, you know, he was received like a welcoming uh, monarchy. Um, you know, all the people come out to greet him and the, the local officials come out in their best Sunday suits and everyone's out there giving grand speeches on a microphone and, and they sing songs and they dance for him and they thank him and they praise him and, and, and they pray for him. But you know, when you leave and you, you go back home to your, um, townhouse in, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and you return back to your, to your comforts, you know, these people are left really with with nothing, with nothing. And arguably, they're left with something that is more dismal and worse than it was before he tried to impose his ideas of progress on them. My guest today has been Nina Monk. Her book is The Idealist. Nina, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. 
The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.